Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let me repeat, all of us need mercy at one point in time or another. Nobody is so perfect in his or her conduct or so free from error or possessed of so much power that the need for mercy will not on some occasion exist. The soldier needs mercy when he appears before his king, but the king needed mercy when he comes to the surgeon, to his surgeon. A failing student needs mercy when he or she stands before the teacher. The teacher needs it when facing an issue before the principal. The principal needs it before the school superintendent. The superintendent at presentations before the school board. And the school board when unhappy parents and taxpayers call. (laughs) None of us are are exempt or outside the outstretched arms of God's mercy in terms of our need of God's mercy. And as we have walked through the Beatitudes, we have walking through what it means to live into the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom. And Jesus says that these values are actually the world right side up, that these are actually values expressed of a world that should be right side up in God's kingdom. Very countercultural to live into these values in the world that we're living in currently. And so today's Beatitude begs the question, does it not? Mercy? Me? How can I show mercy? How can I show forth mercy in a world of cruelty, unforgiveness, hardship, despair? How can I show forth and demonstrate mercy? Mercy is relational, it is practical, and if we're in the kingdom, we extend mercy to others. Jesus is placing the action on those who have received mercy themselves, but also those who extend mercy. Blessed are the merciful. And I'm excited as we dig into this beatitude together as we discover all that it means to be merciful. You said Jesus says this right before the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, the time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near and so very near because of him and in him and through him. And the lame were beginning to walk because of this across Jesus' ministry. People long held captive by demonic spirits were being set free. People having the joy of their sins forgiven. Troubled minds finding peace. Hope was being restored. People from all over the Galilean region were coming to see him. And so we've immersed ourselves along the Beatitudes which is this famous speech, sermon given by Jesus to his followers and to the crowds around him as well. And so they have leapt off the page, and I hope they have for you as we've studied them. So they're in Matthew 5. If you have your Bible with you, you can go there. Matthew 5, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the first books of the New Testament, and it's on page 683 of the Bible in front of you if you want to grab that. It's also on the screen here in a second. Uh, make sure you find, I don't know if this is your home church, Make sure you find a church that preaches and teaches the scriptures faithfully. So I pray that you would find one that does the same, uh, preaches faithfully. So if you can open up there, we'll be there. Beatitudes. Beatitudes are what God calls blessed. And this is what it means to live into the kingdom of God, a part of the vibrant and active kingdom of God. It's a life that's a result of what God does through Jesus in our lives as we live into the world as part of his kingdom. And it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, and this is the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's a vision for what walking with God would look like in the world. Kingdom life looks like on the ground on earth. And it's what happens when the gospel has, when Jesus has come to save us from our sins and God forever dwelling with us 
and by His Spirit with us gets a hold of the human heart and begins to change someone and people begin to live them out. This is all about that kingdom lifestyle, that kind of kingdom beatitude life. And so Matthew's telling us this story. Matthew's the writer of this and he's telling us this and he was a disciple and he is he's seen Jesus as an eyewitness disciple and he's writing this through eyewitness eyes and he's got a front row view of what's happening here you see Jesus comes to present a kingdom not of this world and turns everything right side up the qualities he blesses only seem upside down because our old humanity is upside down and some of these qualities it's like pure in heart merciful Are you kidding me like the world it just doesn't feel well it just doesn't work that way like Blessed are those who trample on people, <laughs> feels like. Blessed are those who have the bigger IRAs. And Jesus, the qualities that he blesses, it feels and seems as though they're very countercultural to our world, and we'll begin to discover that. Daryl Johnson says it like this, poverty in spirit, mourning, gentleness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mercy, purity in heart, peacemaking and being persecuted are all the result of the gospel breaking through us. They are consequences of turning around and then embracing the reign of Jesus Christ. And that's when we embrace the gospel, embrace his lordship in our lives. And it's, that's a result of what happens as well. These aren't passive qualities either, but these are powerful qualities of what it means to be infused by his grace and live into the world around us. The Beatitudes express what a life with God, like kingdom life, what it looks like. And these are values expressed of a person who life lives under the authority and reign of King Jesus. And so these are the ones through whom the world will know and experience the kingdom of God will grow and expand through these kinds of folks. And so these are the ones where people will advance his reign. Jesus will advance his reign through these kinds of people. Let's read it. Matthew 5 verse 1 together. Uh, through verse 12. We'll read this. The Beatitudes. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the what? Merciful, for they will be shown what? Mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, mercy and grace. Grace is unmerited favor. So happy and sync and harmony and synchronized are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is exercising compassion. Some translations say compassion. Mercy and forgiveness are linked together. When we show mercy, we're showing that we ourselves have been forgiven. And we, when we are saved, we are saved on the basis of grace alone. We cannot earn our salvation by showing mercy. We are saved based on the mercy of God through Jesus Christ himself in Ephesians 2, 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not uh, from yourselves. It is a what? Gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Kent Hughes, as an author, says this about this beatitude. What this beatitude means is that those who are truly God's children and as such are objects of his mercy will themselves be merciful and will receive mercy in the end. Showing mercy is evidence that we have received 
mercy. Extending mercy is indication that we ourselves have received mercy. Extending forgiveness is demonstration whether we have been forgiven. We extend and demonstrate forgiveness and grace and mercy because we ourselves have been given that. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Mercy is the plaintiff who appeals to the judge, have mercy on me, do not give me what I deserve. And the gospel is just that. God the judge not giving us what we deserve. Grace and mercy exhibit Christ himself throughout the entirety of his ministry, entirety of who he was as Jesus himself. And Jesus drew, in fact, mercy is the fact that we have deserved wrath and punishment, yet God withheld that from us and in fact saved us through Jesus. And he drew us, and thankfully God extends mercy to us through his son, Jesus. And anyone who encounters Jesus, enters relationship with him, and shares his life will soon to begin to take on mercy. Mercy is one of his greatest concerns, and as part of his kingdom, we are people who take on the character of Christ. And if we have Christ in us, we extend mercy toward others. In his ministry, there's a, there's a point in time where Jesus was in debate with the Pharisees, the self-righteous Pharisees. They criticized him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus responded, it is not who are those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire what? Mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not call, come, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees were the rule keepers. They were the rule enforcers of the day. And they criticized Jesus for picking grain on the Sabbath day. And Jesus responded, if you had known what this means, I desire what? Mercy and not a sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the innocent. Hang around Jesus long enough you cannot, begin to take, you cannot begin to help to take his bent toward mercy. Mercy is part of the very essence of the Christian experience. And a Christian is one who has first received mercy from God, not merely in the form of like a legal transaction, but being reconciled to God in relationship. And within that relationship, one continues to be outpoured with mercy on a daily basis. And this is happening. One becomes trained and empowered to practice mercy toward others. And when Jesus died for us, the ultimate display of mercy found itself on the cross. And the cross is where we find our model for living. He said, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And following Jesus involves following him in all the ways that he did. And we follow, we follow someone, we are following someone who's taking the lead. That's the whole point of that. We do what Jesus did and we become cross-shaped people toward one another. And it can kind of feel like mercy can be the mercy, to think of mercy being dispensed at an impersonal or institutional level, but mercy is for all of us. And it calls for the expressions of mercy in the kitchen, in the office, in the shopping mall. Some years ago, I heard a, uh, the Christian theologian lecture on the Christian concern for the poor and underprivileged and then sat with him at the luncheon table where then he was discourteous and difficult with his server. Apparently he saw mercy as a concept and didn't recognize its potential when it touched his coat sleeve. There are endless needs for mercy all around us on a daily basis. Many of us get close enough to the poverty of an area or its medical needs to see it up close and personal. But what about the inward pain of the person sitting behind us or next to us at the beauty salon? The person at the service station or clerk whose home life looks nothing like the mercy of God, and in fact, merciless. 
What about the pain in the person in the pew in front of you or behind you that someone may be enduring? In what way would the pain of life be relieved in some measure if mercy were shown? The measure that demonstrates itself in human normal kindness and the patience of listening and warm friendliness. Each of us have opportunities to extend mercy many times per day. We who are a part of the kingdom of God channel and allow mercy to flow through us. We cannot let that channel dam up the channel flowing through us. We have to reciprocate mercy toward others. Reminds me of a story in Matthew 18, and uh, this is a story about the unmerciful servant. And he could have well have told this as perhaps, maybe Jesus told this as a warning illustration about this beatitude that we're talking about. A great king was settling accounts with his servants and people whom he had trusted with significant responsibilities. One of them had done poorly, so now he owed the king several million dollars. It was a substantial debt, a debt that he could not remotely meet. The king decided to foreclose the debt by selling the man and his family into slavery. But then the man appealed. When the man appealed, the king released him and forgave his debt. In verse 23, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted settle, to settle the accounts with his servants. And as he began the, began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. So the, the illustration, 10,000 is all, just a lot of money. A lot of bags. And Jesus here is making the point that there's this, this, this big split in our relationship. What, what God did is he mended it. But this big split in between us and God because of sin. What sin has done in our lives. And verse 26. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Said, be patient with me. He begged and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. Canceled the debt and let him go. And you would expect, you would expect that this man would now go out and shower kindness on other people. Instead, irrationally and wickedly, he did the opposite. opposite. He tried to get one of his other, tried to ask for the debt that somebody else owed him, which was a much smaller debt. He went out and wanted a much smaller debt. And he came upon a fellow servant who owed him a modest debt, something like $10, comparatively speaking, perhaps. And he sees the man demanding payment, and the man appealed for mercy and time. But his appeal was refused. And when the news of this shameful incident reached the king, he called the king, called the servant to him. The king called the servant to him. You wicked slave, he said, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy with your fellow slave? And the king delivered him to the jailers. You see, you would expect the man who forgave all of that debt would now be the one to shower kindness on other people, and instead he just did the opposite. When he came upon a fellow servant who owed him a modest debt, like very small, and very small debt, we, he sees the guy and demanded payment. And scene two of this story, it's like we expect a hero or like from the American cinema, like Rambo, or like a Greek legend, Achilles, or Lamech from the book of Genesis, like Captain Forgiveness, so to speak. But who emerges is Dr. Cruel. The man appealed for mercy and time, and his appeal was refused. And when the news of the shameful incident reached the king, you wicked slave, he said, I forgave all that debt, should you not have mercy on your fellow slave. Have we withheld mercy to those who are in debt to us? When we ourselves have debt that's been canceled. 
We've been forgiven of so much, so much, not even deserving of it, and yet who's been forgiven much? We have. And what's first on this guy's mind? What's first on the guy's mind is finding the guy who owes him some cash and getting that guy to pay it all back or immediately else. Mercy and patience and forgiveness and gratitude do not fill that servant's heart. One commentator says it like this, there's a substantial debt that we owe that we cannot pay back to God. Our God is like the distance from the earth to the sun, but our debt to one another, you sin against me or I sin against you, is like the distance between Chicago and Indianapolis as viewed from the sun. Or the distance between Kansas City and Cincinnati, viewed from the sun. Okay, There's a real distance, but it's not comparable. And if God can, if God can bridge that gap, if God can bridge that gap, we should bridge the second. At the end of the parable, Jesus says this, the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Jesus does not pack a punch here. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. For the Christian, there can be no unmediated relationships. Christ stands between me and anybody I encounter on a given day. Therefore, God's vision for my life is that I perceive every person I meet through the lens of Calvary. No matter what that person or the choices they made, I am seeing a person who contains unsurpassable worth on Calvary. How do I know that? Because Jesus paid an unsurpassable price on that person's behalf. He forgave us a debt we could not pay. Jesus absorbed the blow of human sin on the cross, responded with it with forgiveness. We continuously repent and believe, as Jesus says before the Sermon on the Mount, and if this is, struggle, if this is a struggle for you, mercy is not always easy. It's a struggle. Or showing mercy has festered. We place ourselves at the mercy of God over again, aware of God's limitless love toward us, and walk ourselves back to Calvary. In Luke 10, Jesus gives a parable. It's called the Good Samaritan. It's a parable that's often showed itself through uh, TV or media, social media or whatever. And uh, it's Jesus' way of showing us and telling us what mercy with legs looks like. What does mercy look like on the ground? What does it look like to put legs on the mercy of God? In Luke 10, Luke 10, verse 20, if you want to flip there, if you have your Bible open, Luke 10, if you, Matthew, Mark, Luke. So I try to stall time here, so I flip through. Okay, verse 25, here we go. It says this, through verse 29. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Jesus replied that. And the guy said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? 
expert in the law, folks who really challenged Jesus, they show up, they challenge Jesus across his ministry. The guy, this guy was a little bit different though. The guy stands up out of a crowd that's been following Jesus and he wishes to challenge him. They were people in the Old Testament, expert in the law, knew the Old Testament law inside and out, and folks who were the spiritually serious of the day. In fact, you can refer to him as a lawyer. The lawyer is absolutely sure he knows the truth. They were absolutely sure they had all the law crossed off and knew the scriptures inside and out and whatnot. They knew them inside and out, and clearly this expert in the law is asking a good question. But the question that he should know the answer to this, right? If he knows the law, he ought to know the answer to this. In verse 26, Jesus poses a question back to him, and the lawyer responds by quoting two key passages in the Bible in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. Both of these are foundational passages still and and also in the Old Testament. And Jesus says that the law is fulfilled in these two commandments, to love God and love others. This can be said about all our Christian life as well. We are to love God with all that we have, love Him with all that we have, every fiber of our being, love God, and then in turn love our neighbor. And our God, love for God vertically impacts our love horizontally because God is love. Love exists in relationship with God. Our relationship with God is not a stagnant relationship. It's vibrant. It moves. It's one of vibrancy. Reading on, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. When he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. This is Jesus saying, asking this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had what? Mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jumping back to verse 29, the scribe wants to know the answer to what Jesus says. He assumes to love my neighbor, to love my neighbor, like love my neighbor is to love the Jewish guy that hangs out with me, that talks like me, that sees me. And the lawyer asks a follow-up question. Who is my neighbor? You see, the neighbor wants to put limits on the law's demands. He wants a comfortable answer. Who is the neighbor that the law demands me to love? When he hears this, his own demand in verse 27, to love God and love others, he's been thinking about that. Certainly, this, certainly like loving my neighbor, it's got to be restricted to Israelites or to those like in my own clan. And where, where do you draw the line, Jesus? Like, what about the blasphemers and people? And just what about all those people? Like, really, Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reality, the lawyer wants to shrink the law down to his size and limits the law's demand so that he can limit his responsibility and how to keep it. He's looking for an excuse not how to treat everyone with love and mercy. In reality, he just wants to justify whatever, whatever he is feeling right now toward, toward whoever. He wants to justify it. And Jesus illustrates this point. He illustrates this. To love my neighbor 
is the wrong question. The question would be, what does a neighbor look like? Now to give you what of ears for what a, this would have heard been like on the Sermon on the Mount on the Galilean hillside that day in the first century, Jesus liked to tell parables, and that's what he's doing here. Stories that illustrate a higher point. And you'll, finally, you'll find across parables, farming, everyday life, everyday circumstances, money in these parables, references, particular vocations that were commonly known to people of the day. And what was commonly known to the religious community of that day was the group called the Samaritans. Samaritans, and the lines were thick between Jews and Samaritans in the first century. They hated each other. There were a group of people that were despised in that day. They were outcasts. And the feud between the two groups goes back centuries. The line is, was thick between those two groups. And those in the audience would grasp what this was meaning and would hear it. And they would hear of a story of a Samaritan doing and living out the law. And if one reads a few verses down, the Leviticus passage, and that guy quotes in verse 27, the latter half of verse 27, you'll find this. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And then Jesus is saying, if you really love God, in the manner of Deuteronomy chapter 6, you will love your neighbor. And it's Jesus who pushes the lawyer further. Those who knew the law, who even knew and studied the Old Testament scriptures, they knew the Leviticus passage. And yet they still want to keep it within bounds of who can, who, how or who can be neighborly and who I should be a neighbor to. He wants a choice in the matter. I mean, these people were people who would wear, actually they would wear patches. You can, you, you can Google it. The Pharisees would wear patches on their foreheads and have the law sort of in their tiny scrolls on them and would wear them. You see, eternal life, the, the whole premise of it, if we are promised eternal life, if we are in Christ, we are promised to live with Him forever. Eternal life is accepting the mercy of God now and then having His eternal life flow through us on this side of heaven. And it's the lawyer who stands up and asks the question about eternal life in the first place. Eternal life is allowing the mercy of God to flow through us and begins to break through on this side. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. Jesus comes to bring forth the kingdom and promise us that the eternal life begins to burst forth and through his kingdom. One of my favorite verses is Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love what? Mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We are remade to have mercy on our hearts. A heart full of mercy and compassion. It's a river that flows through us and out us. And if you're in Christ, you you cannot have that you cannot have that channel stop in your life and if you stop the river out of you and if love and mercy never get expressed it'll stink up like a swamp within you how can the love of god be in you you see we also make much of doing so much too as the old pepsi max commercial used to say we live our lives to the max we will never if we continue to go what i mean by this we, we may never stop in between Jericho and Jerusalem. We surmise that the priest and the Levite in the passage didn't make time or didn't even see that the person was worth their time. We make too much time out of our schedules keeping so busy we lose sight of all that God intends and lose sight on giving people mercy in the first place. And we have to stop. I know getting home is important. I know the next appointment is necessary. Being on time is important. 
what my God have to say or what Jesus has to say if you never stopped in between Jericho and Jerusalem? Beware of the trap of time. Time will trap mercy out of us. We can't put down enough time, our pads, our phones, or our kids get every opportunity to live a life that we could not. If we don't stop, we don't stop. If we don't stop, we will rarely ever get the opportunity to show mercy. I mean, really, when are we going to stop? When are we going to stop and say, I'm not going to live life at this pace anymore? Jesus himself said this in Matthew 25, 40. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for who? Me. The Samaritan did not need to know why the man was in need or get the backstory as to why he was in need. The good Samaritan did not need to know why the man was suffering. It didn't matter. It wouldn't have changed his actions. Mercy extends to the needy regardless of the person's need for, or the reason for the need. Do we withhold mercy when we discover that the one in need caused his or her problem? Jesus demonstrates that the challenge is not to show mercy to those who are convenient to show mercy to, but to the undeserving. And for the lawyer, showing forth mercy to the Samaritan would have been crossing a line there, a preferential line. Jesus erases those lines. And there are no such lines to be drawn in the kingdom of God to whom we can show forth mercy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer he uses this as a model of prayer for the disciples. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors, as we also. Jesus assumes that we forgive and have this stream of continuous forgiveness in us. Jesus says we also forgive as instinctively as we also forgive others. So the question is, will I be neighborly? Let's stop thinking twice about whether we should stop and help because the person in trouble has enough human dignity to be worth helping. We love ourselves, love your neighbor as yourself. We instinctively love ourselves in the way we feed and clothe ourselves. Let's, not, let's never stop weighing the pros and cons and trying to figure out whether the hungry person has enough value to be fed in the first place. For if we don't do that, we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. In a world where passing by has become a way of being, we don't need more professors of the truth we need more active participants of it. Our world is starving of mercy. So for the church, for us as a church, we learn together how to walk and practice mercy in the local church. As we eat together, break bread together, pray, cry, gather with the same group of men, women, children, spend time together, the practice of mercy sharpens. We commit to one another and cultivate Christian character toward one another. Truly committing to the family of God and committing to a church is countercultural. Yet we give ourselves to Christ and to one another. One of the most common metaphors of the local church is that of a family. The local church is not a competitive enterprise that exists to peddle products in order to appeal to consumers and increase its market share. The local church is a family in which you can be a part of. Healthy families learn to love Healthy families learn to love. Amen. Healthy families learn to love and show forth mercy in the midst of irritations and when we disagree. When we're rooted in a local church, we extend mercy 
and show forth mercy in here as well as out there. We never outrun the mercy of God. You are never too far. You never outrun the mercy of God. You can never outrun the mercy of God. God's mercy is, is, is endless for us. Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His what? Mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thank God His mercy is new today. And as we close, we've been saying this prayer. Lord, as our church, and for us, I pray this would be your prayer. It's mine. Lord, let my heart break for what breaks yours. Help me as I draw closer to your heart. Let the things that break your heart break mine. Help me to see the things that I dismiss that break your heart. And if often I'm honest, I fall short. Lord, help us to see the folks walking in darkness. Lord, help us to have our hearts break for those like the Samaritan, the guy on the road. Help us to have enough dignity and time to see people as they truly are. In our kingdom bearing and drawing near, we can further the kingdom by entering into their mourning. Lastly, Lord, my affections and desires for you be aligned above all else and have my purpose be for your glory, to see your glory come, and may it begin to shine forth in my life. Amen? Amen. Uh, worship team, will you come up as we sing this? And <clears throat> Let me pray.